I went back and listened again to that moment from last week's debates, the one where Kamala Harris confronts Joe Biden about his voting record when it comes to race. I wanted to figure out why we're still talking about it days later. We're going to get to you. Hang on. We're going to get to stage. I would like to speak on the issue of race. The candidates were talking about police violence when Kamala Harris interrupts the flow. She says is the only black person on the stage. She wants to be heard. In just a moment. Go for 30 seconds. Okay. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue. That Senator Harris goes on to say, we haven't been talking about race honestly in this country. And then she builds her case. She talks about relatives who fear the police. She calls out Joe Biden for working with segregationists. And then... You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. It took a minute for the audience to catch on that the senator was telling her own story but once they did, the debate seemed to crescendo. Well, there was a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the, the second class to integrate Berkeley, the, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must step the, in. The that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Honestly, no one's more surprised than me that... Uh, Busing and school desegregation has been in the news in the last few days. Matt Delmont wrote a book called Why Busing Failed. What I found in my research was often the debate over school desegregation uh, really ended up being parents and politicians yelling at each other. And what fell out of that was what did it mean for students? What did it mean for young people? For Harris to speak to her own experience as someone who uh, started in a busing program as a first grader, that was really powerful. And for her to reflect on the fact that it was a, a positive experience for her, that aligns with a lot of the research that scholars have done when they've tracked how students have performed 10, 20 years later, that most students really benefited from school desegregation. But that's not the way the story has really played out in the media. Yeah, what struck me about this moment was that it felt like turning over a rock. Like a- afterwards, all of these things started to happen. Like, you know, the, the left sort of cheered and then you know, the right weighed in in these interesting and sort of weird ways. Like you saw this tweet going around the web saying Kamala Harris wasn't black enough. It just it seemed like an electric shock to the system. Yeah. For me, it's been really interesting to see how it's played out the last three or four days, because honestly, it's not an issue that I think most Democrats want to talk about honestly. When we think about the people who upheld racist policy in it, policies in the United States, we tend to think about conservatives or, or sort of Southern segregationist uh, senators who were with the Dixiecrats, but then eventually moved, aligned with the Republican Party. But with the history of busing, it was really the Democrats and a lot of people who considered themselves champions of civil rights who, who thwarted a lot of these school desegregation efforts outside of the South. Matt says it's worth paying attention to this moment because school segregation is a skeleton in the Democrats' closet, an issue with a dark history that many Democrats have been more than happy to forget. Today, we're going to try to reckon with that history. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Your book is called Why Bussing Failed. But I'm wondering if we can talk about that a little bit. Like, did it fail? Because Kamala Harris basically got up on the stage Thursday night and said, for me, this succeeded. Yeah. The reason I chose that title for the book was that I wanted to take on this sort of mythology that's been built up around busing for school desegregation. I want to take that on head on. When I was doing this research over five or six years, I found repeatedly, both by politicians and by scholars, this sort of repeated phrase, busing failed, busing failed, busing failed. This is both among Republicans, Democrats, left and right think tanks. And as I actually dug into it, though, what I realized was that school districts had actually tried to use busing for school desegregation. Once they actually got plans in place, if they stuck with it, things weren't perfect, but they often worked. Uh, school desegregation benefited students, particularly students of color and low-income students. So the, the sort of facts on the ground were that busing was successful. So let's talk about a place where it worked. Let's talk about Berkeley, where Kamala Harris grew up, because I think her story really explains the subtleties at work here pretty well. I mean, first of all, she was in Berkeley, California, which is not the Deep South by any means. Exactly. And Berkeley is a success story with regards to school desegregation. The story there starts in the late 1950s when civil rights activists in the city are really pushing uh, the school board to address what they see as school desegregation in the city. Now, in California, like a lot of places outside of the South, it wasn't explicitly written into so the school board guidelines to send black kids to one school and white kids to another school, it followed uh, residential housing segregation. So black families could only buy houses in certain parts of California or certain parts of Berkeley uh, based on the, the federal policy of redlining. But that produced school segregation. And a lot of times people talk about this as de facto segregation. Like in Berkeley, many of the black families lived in the sort of flat areas and the white families lived in the hillier, I guess, assumably quote unquote, nicer areas. You see it differently, though. Yeah, myself and other scholars who've worked on the issue uh, think de facto segregation is a myth. What we mean by that is de facto means that it's innocent, that it's somehow accidental segregation, that it's not encoded by law. But in fact, segregation across the country was created through a series of local, state, and federal policies that intentionally segregated neighborhoods. And so where people could get mortgages to live, where they could buy property and then and then raise families, that had everything to do with official policies. So the idea that it was de facto or accidental is completely false. Hmm. I'm wondering if you can break down for me what the plan was in Berkeley, because my understanding is that it was pretty comprehensive. That's right. So the, the plan in Berkeley was comprehensive. They hired a school superintendent named Neil Sullivan, um, who had already done really important work in Prince Edward County, uh, Virginia, working on school school desegregation, opening up schools for um, for black students there. And so he came in with a lot of experience to the Berkeley school system. They produced these 30-page um, reports that they then circulated to parents and to community members to really explain what they were doing and made a really strong vocal case for integration. But the plan itself involved hiring more African-American teachers. It involved making sure that there was they eliminated the kind of overcrowding that you saw in minority schools and the kind of resource gaps you saw between the more low-income neighborhoods and the um, more affluent neighborhoods. 
And in Berkeley, they made this decision that they were going to bus both white and black kids. Black kids would go to schools that had been traditionally whiter and white kids would go to schools that had been traditionally made up of more kids of color, right? Yeah, the a lot of communities put the burden of busing on black students. So they would have what they would call one-way busing programs where they bus black students or minority students out of their neighborhoods into white schools. Berkeley, importantly, had a two-way busing program. So white, black students, also Asian-American and Mexican-American students, all those students rode the bus, so it was much more equitable. What did the fight look like in Berkeley? Because it wasn't what we were used to seeing in the South that, you know, we all obviously knew bad, wrong. You know, it wasn't fire hoses and separate water fountains. What did the fight look like in Berkeley? So this is... In 1964, there was a group of parents that formed uh, essentially a, an anti-busing group. Um, they called themselves uh, concerned parents or something like that. They had a, a recall effort where they tried to recall uh, several members of the board uh, to protest the increasingly pro-integration uh, movement of the board. That recall effort was unsuccessful. I think uh, 60% of voters voted in favor of keeping the board. And so what it looked like was a lot of very heated PTA meetings and a lot of very heated town hall discussions. But I think it's important that those happened everywhere. And I think in a lot of places, those came to dominate, that politicians and school officials were afraid of standing up in front of angry parents uh, and trying to make a case for school integration. We shouldn't be misled that somehow Berkeley was extraordinarily liberal um, and that that's why it succeeded there. It succeeded because they had push from civil rights activists to make the issue uh, something that they had to address. But then they had local leaders who were willing to stand up in front of sometimes angry constituents and angry parents and continue to make the case and recognize that not everyone was going to be happy. Um, some people were going to move because they were upset, but to stick with it and see that this was something that was going to be the best for the city over the long term. It's important to understand that Berkeley's school busing program was voluntary. After years of debate and negotiation, the school board voted unanimously to implement it. But it didn't happen until more than a decade after Brown versus Board of Education. So what happened in Berkeley itself once this integration program happened? How did it change the makeup of the city and what it became many years later? So in the mid and late 1960s, Berkeley is still a, a largely Republican city. By the early 1970s into the mid-1970s, a lot of those families start to move out. Um, part of the national process of, of white flight, people pursuing um, different housing opportunities that are largely only available to white families to move to the suburbs. Um, so the, the city starts to become more left-leaning and, and resemble more of the, the liberal ideology we understand about Berkeley today. But the city also continues to be very multi-ethnically diverse. Um, so these busing programs and the school desegregation programs that, that are in Berkeley, they're controversial. They're not, they never receive 100% support. But it's important that they have local leadership that continues to make the case and make the case vocally about why this is a civic virtue. So it's it's not a, a trouble-free process, but although there's some bumps in the road, they, they get enough people to stay in the city um, across racial lines to really make the, the program work. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because you're really painting a picture of this is a, su a successful program. Kids begin mixing and... When you read interviews with kids who have been through the program, they do talk about how they learned about how other kids were and, and you know, not to perceive people using stereotypes only. But at the same time, the whole city changed in the wake of this. And, and so in some ways it was it was a success. But in other ways, I guess I see it as not a success at all. Well, I think it, it does depend on what you define as a success. Um, so I think the important starting point is 
in the 1950s and 60s, the kind of educational opportunities that were available to black students and low-income students were definitely not successful. So anything that was put in place to try to change that and encountered success, I think is a positive. Um, I think if we approach it from the perspective of was every white person and white parent happy, that didn't happen anywhere. It didn't happen <laughs> in liberal cities or more conservative cities. Um, it didn't happen in Berkeley. Um, and so I don't think the fact that some families move out, that the city becomes more left-leaning, I don't think that's a, a real detriment to that, that case. Because other cities that had success, um, Louisville, Charlotte, Raleigh, those were more conservative cities. They had different contexts. They were under court orders. They, they had to do it. But they found their way through as well. So these things are never entirely perfect. But if we start from a vantage point of segregate education was a failure <laughs> and things that were moved beyond that encountered some period of success. You know, in the days after this debate, I kept hearing the same statistic over and over again. Like on the Internet, I heard Joe Biden's communications people putting it out there that only 5 percent of whites and only 9 percent of blacks approved of busing. Are those statistics actually correct? I think they're misleading. So the way those polls were were put together, the first question was, do you support integration? And I think the response to that was uh, over 60% of people said they, re- they supported integration. And then it walked through a series of different proposals for how you would achieve integration. And so that's where that 9% and the 5% number came from. And so I think it's important that there was an increasing movement towards people favoring integration. The problem was you actually have to do something to achieve that kind of integration. So some of the other options on that, that poll were changing residential housing patterns. That would be great, but it's even harder to do than to change school segregation patterns. Um, I think one of the things that can be misleading about those numbers, again, is these things were not should not have been put up to popular vote. If we had to wait for the majority of Americans, the majority of white Americans to be in favor of uh, equal rights for minorities, we would still be waiting a long time. Um, that's the role that courts and the federal government has to play um, to ensure that we uh, live up to the Constitution. When Joe Biden talked about busing back in the 70s and 80s, he tried to walk this line. I happen to be one of those so-called uh, people who are labeled as a liberal on civil rights but oppose busing. This is from an interview he did with CNN back in 1981. He said he was in favor of civil rights, but when it came to busing, he just didn't like the federal government telling local officials what to do. And on the issue that the argument is about, and that is whether or not busing serves a, uh, is A, required constitutionally, and B, is has a utilitarian value for desegregation, I come down on the side of A, it is not constitutionally required, and B, it is not a useful tool. But, but if you would strip the... Matt says Biden's point of view is pretty common at the time. He was picking up, though, on what a lot of Democratic politicians, going back to President Kenny, going back to Hubert Humphrey, how they understood the issue. They thought they were in favor of civil rights. They pushed forward a lot of very important civil rights legislation, but that largely only impacted the South. They didn't think the federal government had a role to play in trying to uproot the types of segregation that happened uh, in northern, western, and midwestern cities that were largely a product of these kind of federal housing policies, and then the way in which local school districts would would draw zoning lines that only perpetuated residential segregation. So for Biden to sort of say, I'm pro-civil rights, but anti-busing, he wasn't alone. He was building on sort of a history within the Democratic Party. But I think it misses the important part of what civil rights was actually about, right? It, It wasn't just sort of this narrowly tailored, let's get rid of white drinking fountains and black drinking fountains, and that it's only going to apply to Mississippi and Alabama. But there were civil rights movements in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, and the conditions there differed. To say that you opposed busing means that you didn't actually favor, didn't actually support civil rights. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that no one was asking him the obvious follow-up question, which was, if you're pro-civil rights, but you're anti-busing, what are you for? Exactly. I think that's where the language of busing can be can limit the kind of conversations we can have about what actually are we talking about. So you can say you're opposed to busing, but then how are you going to address the very real educational inequalities that exist in Biden's case, like in Wilmington, Delaware, um, or exist in Chicago or exist in New York or elsewhere across the country? Um, Politicians were able to lean on that one code word, busing, and it allowed them to not have to actually reckon with the fact that this meant generations of students of color and low-income students were going to continue to get secondhand educations. You really take issue with the language that we used back in the 70s and 80s. And honestly, we're still using it right now when we say busing. Like in your book, you put busing in scare quotes the whole time because I think your point of view, correct me if I'm wrong, is that fronting the idea of busing basically puts the white perspective first, the white fear that somehow their kids were in some kind of danger by traveling 30 minutes to go to school. That's exactly it. So busing is a code word. Uh, When they put it in quotes, it's a code word because it's a euphemism that white parents use to mean that we want to maintain segregated schools and we don't want to send our kids to school with black and Latino students. Busing was just one tactic among many to try to integrate schools. Uh, Students could ride buses. They could redraw zoning lines. They could pair schools. All that was fine. I should also point out that students have ridden buses in the United States to school for a long time. Uh, Starting in the 1920s, it's what made modern American schools possible. It's what allowed us to move from sort of the one-room schoolhouses to multi-grade elementaries and to comprehensive high schools. None of that was controversial uh, among white families. And in fact, buses were often used to maintain segregation in a lot of cities. So busing was not an issue when it was just about transportation. It only became an issue when it got linked to desegregation. And these protests start as early as the 1950s in New York. And so this language of busing Once I got into the research, I realized that was the thing I had to try to make clear to people that once we, if we're only talking about busing, we've already lost the battle. That the the story has been and should be about how did these schools become surrogated? How was that maintained? And then what can we do to desurrogate schools and provide better educational opportunities for students of color and for low-income students? I really like what you're saying there about like once we're we've sort of seeded the language, like we've already lost. Because I was watching the debate with a mixed group of people and the older people I was watching with had a really strong reaction to Kamala Harris talking about busing. And the reaction was that this was tribal in some way, that this was, you know, signaling um, in some way to a base. And it struck me as I thought about it afterwards, I really didn't realize it in the moment, but that what she was actually talking about was kind of the opposite of tribalism, where she's talking about mixing people together so that you're not separated into your individual groups and how beneficial that was. But it struck me watching that if progressives aren't making that case very, very clearly, that we might have more trouble as this presidential race goes on. I think that's right. I mean, I saw some kind of snarky tweets afterwards that were like, well, ask Kamala Harris what her position is on busing or ask the other candidates, make it a next topic of the next debate. And I think that's exactly the wrong perspective to take, because once you understand the history and the baggage that that word has and that it was purposefully used to try to thwart civil rights, I think more than anything, that's the, the issue that we can't be a country that lionizes Martin Luther King, lionizes Rosa Parks, lionizes the, the kind of the golden age of the civil rights movement and still lean on these terms that were 
they were racist. They were explicitly used to try to maintain school segregation, educational inequality. So rather than letting that term dominate the debate, they should open up the next debate and ask the, the candidates, what are you going to do to improve educational opportunities for students of color and low-income students? Hmm. That that has always been the question, but the way it's been deferred for the last several decades was by leaning on on code words that allow us to not really reckon with the history of our country. Matt Delmont, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Matt Delmont is a professor of history at Dartmouth College. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. If you want to go laugh right now, or maybe laugh and cringe at the same time, head on over to Mike Pesca's podcast, The Gist. There is a fresh new episode waiting in his feed for you. It's all about the lovable humor of dad jokes. I'm not joking about that. If you have a good dad joke, send them to me. I'm on Twitter, at Mary's Desk. All right, everyone. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.